We've got some fresh new young talent doing some things that I know you haven't heard before. One, two, three, listen. You gotta have a like the why, and we know our why. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yep. Millions and millions of people have done this already. You can get help, you can get a roadmap, you can save a lot of time, money, and frustration. Welcome to the Value Add Podcast with K and K. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another amazing, fabulous, spectacular episode of Value Add with K and K. I like that intro. That was good. Really good intro. Is that good? It was okay. That was real good. Real, real good. Crystal, what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about how we have kind of changed our strategy with investing. We're currently trading up again. Um, with our properties. And so people ask us all the time, like, what's your strategy and why did you do this and why are you doing that? So we just kind of want to be really transparent with you guys and let you know, like, what we're seeing and how we're kind of pivoting with where we think things are kind of headed. Um, so that's what we're, we're talking about today. Yeah. Monty picked this topic. We gave her five yeah. and she picked this one. <clears throat> so we're winging it. We're winging it. And I think if you actually have done it, then you're not winging it because you're just talking about what you did. Well, for me, the thing is, is that a lot of people, I mean, don't get me wrong. I completely admire and want to emulate some of these really big apartment owners. Um, and we have people who, you know, go and talk to some of these guys that own 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 units. And they sit down with them and they ask them about their investing strategies and what they should be doing and what the next step is that they should be taking. And I think that's great because you can always get some nuggets of information from these people. But what you also need to do is, like, Take a step back and see what they're using to reference their suggestions to you. Because if I owned 3,000 units, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I will hopefully own like 35 units on our own. Um, So my strategy at this level of the game where I'm at today is going to be different than what I'm going to be doing if I own 1,000 units or 2,000 units or 3,000 units. So that's like the one thing I think – people should take away um, from talking to these big apartment owners. It's great, but you that's like a model that you would probably use at a later time. So I would say that kind of what we're doing is a good kind of model for what you might want to do if you're a smaller apartment owner or you're trying to trade up or trying to become a bigger owner. Yeah, I mean um, it's pretty easy to – listen to podcasts or go sit down with somebody like you just said that owns a lot of units, right? It's pretty easy. What you guys are not understanding is when you go sit down and talk to that person, let's say they're even a syndicate or they own that much. If they're an individual and they own that much, they have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of cash flow. They have a lot of cash and they have another thing called a tax problem. So their strategy, some people go, why are they buying overpriced properties? And you go, that's stupid. And they could look at you and say, well, if you had 2,000 units and you made five, $8 million a year and you're worth hundreds of million dollars and your CPA says, you're gonna, if you don't keep buying, you're going to pay this much money to the government, you're basically going to be, I'm going to keep buying. You know. So for them, it's not about cash flow. When you get to 1,000 units or a couple thousand, I mean even less, you're at a, just a completely different level. And so the problem is when you sit down, like Crystal said, and talk to them, they can give you advice, but really is you want to ask them what did they do 25, 30 years ago because that's the advice you want. And what they were doing 
is they were buying properties. They were leveraging. Some of them were really leveraging and they were trading up and doing it over and over and over and over and over again. And after 20, 30 years of doing that, that's when you see them now with, you know, the nice portfolio, the cash flow, and then they're looking at things differently. So today our focus is on, you know, what we're doing. Um, we don't own thousands of units. We know people that do. And so whether we talk to them or not, our strategy today is pretty simple is we bought in the two buildings we're going to discuss. We bought them um, at a good price. We put money into them, rehab them. We raised rents. We raised the income. We raised the um, equity in the building. That means we raised the value. And what we decided is after looking at it, we can't raise rents anymore. We don't feel like values are going to go up. And we're not really making a great return and we have a lot of equity sitting in there that we could take out and go put into a different property. So to break it down, we sold buildings that are in the 320, 30 range per door. Crystal can correct me if I'm wrong. And we're going to buy out of a neighborhood that's more hip and up and coming that everybody wants to be in. It's expensive. And we're moving it into more of a traditional bread and butter apartment building that's you know more than double the size of the units. And we're going to make more money on our money we're going to put down. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of – I call that workforce housing. That's probably what most people would refer to it as. The location's probably a C. But before we get into that, the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about is this this whole notion of properties being too expensive. Um, don't get me wrong. There are properties that don't make sense. I did a video this morning that um, I'll hopefully be releasing soon, but it's – talking about like I was comparing this deal that we're buying, um, the workforce housing sort of deal to a coastal property. But the one thing that always gets me, and you hear it a lot with some of these older apartment owners too, I hear like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. That's too expensive. And it's just like expensive is compared to what? So, you know, I get it. If you're looking at the coastal property and you have to put 50% down versus looking at this, you know, C, C neighborhood where I'm, you know, putting 35% down and I'm doubling my return that you would get for the same down payment, doubling the units I could buy and doubling, more than doubling the units and doubling my down payment um, or doubling my return on investment. So going from a 4% return on a coastal property with 50% down to an 8% return on a, on a workforce housing deal um, with 35% down, like that makes sense all day. Um, I, I would make that argument that the coastal properties just don't make sense unless you're in a position where you need write-offs versus income. Or, or, um, or, or. legacy and, you know, there's other. Or ways. you can VRBO them. But that's more or of work. It's a different gonna, model. Yeah, maybe a, you're going to do that too. But my, my point is, is that everybody's, kind of getting nervous about the market right now and they're saying like oh these deals are too expensive and you know don't get me wrong you need to make sure that the numbers make sense but expensive I mean it's never going to be as cheap probably I mean we might have a little dip like let's say that we go into like a recession and there's a a small dip in the market but over time you're never going to see prices as low to as they are today so in the future five years from now your building is going to be worth more Here's the thing. That's a true statement, but it's also false because if we go into a depression or a crash, they could go down. But ultimately, we just – most people, if you look out 20 years, the house, the apartment – Or 10. No. Yeah. No. I mean look. If you're buying in a place like the Midwest, that could be different where a town's vacating and we're talking about – 
we're buying in cities that Strong are thriving and growing. Markets. Exactly. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree that everybody, you know, I think the problem is, is everybody looks in the rear view mirror when they're buying, they go, well, I got this deal five years yeah, ago. But they're for this. not looking to the future. Yeah. And for example, the event that we went to CoStar spoke at a couple of weeks ago, um, he, he compared, they have all this data and they were looking at apartment prices in 2008. So apartment prices since 2008 have doubled in San Diego. I mean, he wasn't speaking to other parts of the country, but I'm sure that would be indicative if some places maybe more than doubled or a little less than doubled or whatever, what have you. But the point is, is that in 2008, when we were in a recession, since that point in time, prices have doubled. That's, so, that's because, um, rents have gone way up. People yeah. were not buying homes. They're not qualifying for homes. They're recession. And the other big thing is we were not – I mean nobody was really building for five years. So – and then what a lot of people understand right now is because of the recession, it screwed up things. And what it screwed up is um, you know, mostly kids go to college. They come out of college. They get a job and they buy a house. And this has been going on for time and time and time. But what they didn't – people don't predict is you're going to have the great recession which not only did kids kids are coming out of school now but kids have more college debt than ever so they don't, they're not getting the job they thought you know you go to school you pay $200,000 $150,000 you think you're going to come out get a $100,000 job but then you can't afford a house so all this stuff backlogged and it's not working so basically and what happened is, is a lot of these millennials they want to be able to move around they don't want to be locked down and tied to a house because they saw their mom, their grandma, their uncle, a friend lose the house and they said, how is that the American dream to buy a house and get foreclosed on a short sale? So they would rather rent. They want to be movable, mobility. So that's where we're at right now in the market. So it pushed rents up, which pushed prices up. And obviously, if you own multifamily 10 years ago to now, you it was a great investment. Right. So what I'm saying moving forward is all these people that are crying about how they can't find a deal, that everything's too expensive, that nothing makes sense, are basically looking to the past to say, oh my gosh, you know, values have gone up. They've gone up double and something's got to happen and this is too expensive and I'm not going to buy and it doesn't make sense. If you look out from today and you come back 10 years from now, you're going to be that same person that's saying, oh my gosh, 10 years from now, prices are too high. Everything's too expensive. And you're, the, the properties that you were looking at today are going to be worth more. I won't even say double, but they will be worth more than what you're looking at today in price. And this is, it's, it's pretty simple, guys. If you're going to, people call me all the time and go, hey, you think it's a good time to buy a house? It's honestly, it's not that it's a stupid question. It doesn't make sense because this is why. If you're going to buy a house today, lock in a 30-year fixed in the low fours, right? Because rates are great. Um, and you're going to stay there for 20 years. Crystal, is it a good time to buy a house? Sure, I guess. If you're going to sit there for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. But who fine. does that anymore? But the problem is everybody's asking these questions because they're going back to the last recession where people were buying houses to flip them and chasing like equity. But we're not talking about that. Like if you're trying to buy an apartment building, you think you're going to buy it, do nothing to it, and then you're going to sell it in two years and make money, is that model dead? Uh, it might not work. But if you buy an apartment building, you add value to it by rehab, raising rents, you know, doing you know, maybe the roof, like redo the whole kitchens, the floor, all that stuff, right? And you're going to add value to the property. Is it going to be worth more crystal than when you bought it? Yes. Okay. I mean, it's simple numbers too. You increase income, you increase value. But That's if you, but line. Crystal's saying is if you buy an apartment building for $350,000 a door right now in San Diego, and in 10 years you do nothing to it and you just keep renting it out, 
that apartment building is going to be worth more money. Obviously, it's more advantageous to rehab it because you're going to make more money. Yeah, but that that's kind of what we're going into the strategy about right now. So we totally went off on a different topic just because I hear people talking about these expensive apartment buildings and it kind of drives me crazy, honestly. Um, so let's just talk, okay. I want to talk about kind of where our strategy has been. So for the last you know, five years since we started investing, our goal was to purchase value-add properties because we knew that we could buy a building and put X amount of dollars in and probably at least double that investment into the property. So I knew that if I bought a building and I put $250,000 into improving that building and increasing the income that I was going to get like at least half a million dollars in value. Like that would be a conservative number. We've done better than that. So that has been our strategy all along. And that is how we have traded into, you know, continued to trade up. So now uh, one thing I wanted to say is you were mentioning about um, these properties. I wasn't necessarily unhappy with the return that we were getting on the properties, but we had maximized the income. So there was nowhere else for us to go on increasing that income. And then let me jump and in. And then we had a lot of equity that was sitting there that we wanted to take to do, you know, to trade up because our, we have goals to own a lot more. Units. Okay. So, and let me just jump in here. So we maximized cash flow. Yes. We rehabbed the building probably about as much as anybody would do, right? Yes. We maximize the cash flow. But the other thing is people are like, well, why don't you keep the building? Why don't you refi and pull cash out? Well, that's the other thing. We maximize the rents. We maximize the loan amount. So we, we refi, could not so, so we could not pull any more cash out. So either we sit there in neutral and let just, just cash, flow. cash flow or we go take the couple million dollars equity that's in there. And you basically say, let's go put that to work on a, you know, on a bigger building that's a lower price for a door. And we're going to make, now we're going to be making money on all of that 2 million rate of return. So that's what we decided to do. But don't get me wrong. There's people that have a hundred unit buildings and they don't want to sell because it's a great, it's a great property to own. It's a great property to run. And they don't, they're not going to trade up. They will leverage it. Your strategy is different when you own a 100-unit building versus a 7-unit building or a 9-unit building. For unless me, a REIT wants to pay you a lot of money or something, then you might go fine. I'll maybe, sell. Yeah. maybe. But um, for me, on a 7-unit building and a 9-unit building, I, for me, I want scale. I want economies of scale. So a 7-unit building and a 9-unit building is not giving me the economies of scale that I want So or we want. So we want to trade up into larger buildings. There will come a point in time when we own larger buildings that we probably just keep and refi and use leverage in order to grow. Because again, when I own 100 units and I want to refi, pull cash out and go buy, I have a lot more cash that I can go deploy and make money on than when I have a seven unit or a nine unit building that I refi, pull cash out and keep. So my strategy is different. It's much easier to grow once you get, like I personally think it's going to be much easier for us to grow when we're at 100 units versus at 16. Yeah, and then it's, it's going to be easier to grow 60. when you're at 500 units and at 100 because, right, right. because simply is the scale – and then simply because you have that much more equity that you can pull. And sometimes if the market goes down, that's obviously not when you're pulling equity out. Correct. Like on this last turn, people right before 2007 and eight, whatever, they were kind of stuck. And then soon as people started coming up, what did all the big guys do? They're like, holy smokes, my building. They first took a, there was a first tranche. Some of them took a first tranche of a refi and said, oh, they went up, 
you know, 50%. And they took their cash and started buying, buying, buying on the way up. Then they got another tranche or it went up more and they pulled out another one, right? Some people are pulling out it for a third time because it went up so much. So they, they, right. they, they, they refi on cash all the way up. So a lot of them are sitting on cash ready to say, hey, am I going to keep buying? They'll eye properties. Maybe they'll think, oh, this property is in a great location long term. I want to own it for legacy or I just this is going to be great in 20 years for my kids. Like you said, there's different strategies. So right now – we took two properties, we rehabbed, fixed them up, took the equity out of them, went and bought this bigger property, which we're going to gain a lot more cash flow. And then with this property, we're going in, we're raising rents, we're going to maximize the rents as soon as possible, which will actually, you know, we're buying for 5.7. And I think we did the math that the property, once we raise the rents, will be worth about 6.4 million. Yes. So we're not, but this property, what we liked about it is it's probably... Typically, we go into these properties and spend fifteen, twenty thousand a door. This one, we probably would go in and spend maybe fifty thousand dollars over the next year. Would you? Was that a if that? If, yeah. If that, that's that's. And yeah. also, again, um, going from owning in North Park, which is like a hip, trendy neighborhood that everybody wants to be in, to um, buying in National City, which is more of a C neighborhood. I'm not going to do the same finishes that we did in North Park. It just doesn't make sense. So I'm not going to – Talk about like why you wouldn't do that and why it does not make sense. Well, for one, um, part of what we really liked about owning in North Park was the kind of tenants that you were going to get to um, when you fixed up. So we could have even raised rents. Some people would argue that we um, over-improved our properties and maybe, you know, I guess. I don't personally think so because part of – what we rehabbed for was ease of management. So uh, for one, um, I would go in and do like the stainless steel and the nicer flooring and um, new cabinets and counter quartz countertops and all this because I'm getting that kind of millennial working professional or military person or that kind of person all different is living. Terms, yeah. yeah, all types of people. But um, those are the kinds of people that were living in our buildings in North Park. Um, and here's the thing, just to jump in about the in North Park, when we owned those units and any of the stuff we managed, I would say at some one time in North Park, we were probably managing what at the peak around that area, 50, 75, 100 units. What do you think in North Park area? Uh, like probably 150 or so. Okay. Yeah. Out of 150 units, how many evictions do you think we had? I had maybe one, which was a fluke. And a lot of times it's when it's it's those tenants before you rehabbed. So once we rehabbed, you're getting working professionals. No, I mean once we got the new ones in. Yeah, once None. you get the new ones in, you just don't have any. And then let me explain why. People pay their rent on time. Why? They like where they live. They have better credit. But why do, why aren't they going to get evicted? Because they, they have good credit. No, they just, exactly. They, make, they don't want to have bad credit. Exactly. I mean, basically. So They I mean, care. Right, they care. Um, and then like they, they also like – probably are the people who aspire to buy property one day, whether it's a home or an investment property or what have you. Um, And people who like, you know, get, you know, buy cars at like 0% finance. Like these are the kinds of people that use their credit and need their credit. So the property we're buying now, do you think we'll have more evictions? 100%. 100%. So um, we're 100% going to have more evictions. I know that going into it. So I'm not going to be emotional about that. Kind of stuff. I mean, and again, some more late pairs. If you're if you're not the type, if you're the type of owner who's getting involved in all of this stuff, because we've had plenty of those owners owning a management company that are calling, you know, for every little problem, did this person pay, and what excuse, and getting emotionally involved, and like that doesn't make any sense. 
I don't get involved in that. This is a business, um, so I'm going to handle it that way. I'm not going to get emotional about it. So I know myself, and I'm okay with that, and I know that I'm going to have to pay a little bit more in attorney's fees and eviction fees, and I'm going to have um, some people that I can't collect on, uh, potentially, because I'm, like, I know what I'm buying. I'm getting an 8% return on my investment at market rate rents, more than an 8% return. So yes, some of that is going to account for like the additional headache that goes with owning a property. And for me, I don't consider it headache. I'm not, that's not my headache. That's my property manager's headache. I'm not going to make that my problem. And they're that's not, their problem. And they're not emotional because they don't own it. They don't really care if the person lost their job. Unfortunately, they don't. They're just like, look. Follow the contract. Follow the contract. Yeah. Follow the rules. Follow the law. That's what we're here that's to hire. It. And that's – and honestly, the biggest thing we tell people, if you're self-managing, which is can be scary, is 90% of people, the reason why they fail is because they be, become emotional and they get involved and they take it personal when it's not personal. Somebody has a problem. Well, they start making exceptions. They start, yep. again, um, making decisions based on emotions instead of based on business. And that becomes problematic for people. And some people just can't let go. Like we've had owners that went from self-management to um, us managing that even ended up taking it back because they were just so emotionally invested that they could not get themselves out of that situation. So that's a choice. Um, don't own in these neighborhoods if that's who you are and the kind of owner that you are. And honestly, I don't even think you should own real estate if that's the way it is. Like if you're not going to treat it like a business, you're never going to have success. Um, so um, this is kind of our strategy of trading up. So for me to go from 16 units to now, it's actually 29 units. We've got one like a bonus studio, but so is the income doubling, cash flow doubling. The cash flow is, is more, more than, than double. More than doubling. So basically, yeah. you know, if you're making 5 grand somewhere here, you could potentially be making 12 or something. You just giving an example. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but you were more, more like more, 6 and 13. We're so more than doubling know, and then there's yeah. upside up on yeah. top of the 13. So we're basically this is what we're saying. So this is why you trade up. When you look at people that are in their 50s and 60s and they've owned the same real estate, they don't do much with it, which is fine. And then they look at the guy and go, wow, how did he get the 250 units? The difference from him is he just kept moving and moving and moving and moving along. So he kept using the equity from his properties, whether cash out refi, pulling it out, going to buy another one, pulling it out, going to buy another one. And you have to be disciplined with that because a lot of people pull cash out and they pay for the lifestyle and they do this and they do that, which is fine, but that's – you're using your money and you're not reusing it. So you're putting your money you should be putting to work. You're using another stuff that's a dead – that's a dead – basically a dead asset. So they do that. They keep trading up or they say, you know what? I've got the much – like Crystal said, i got as much as I can on this property. Maybe it's a little tough to manage. I don't really want this long term. I'm going to kick it – I'm going to kick kick it away to somebody else. I'm going to refi. I mean I'm going to – Sell it, 1031, and go buy another building. Or like us, we sold two buildings at the same time, traded up to another one. This building we're here now, I who knows? We'll see how the market is and the economy. I would say this is probably going to be a two- to three-year hold for us mm-hmm. unless things change. If they do, we just we just cash flow it, and we'll take this, and we'll trade it up to probably a – you know maybe we'll combine it with something else. But we'll probably trade it up to hopefully a 50-, 60-unit building. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing I wanted to talk about, again, with this economies of scale, like the thing is, is uh, this is my like argument with people who own all these single families that I think, you know, just don't make any sense for the most part. Um, So we had the two properties. So I have um, no on-site staff to help us with anything. Um, I have two roofs to deal with. I have two 
properties that need landscaping. I have two um, laundry rooms to take care of. So now buying the one building, it's a big enough building that has an on-site manager that can help out with things. So now they can help do showings. They can keep the property clean. I don't have to pay a porter. It's part of the on-site manager's duty. Um, they are responsible for the property. I have two roofs because it's technically two buildings, but same location. Um, I have one lawn or, you know, property that I need to worry about the landscaping for. I have, you know, like this is the kind of thing that you can operate a lot more efficiently because you have one larger property than having a bunch of smaller properties. So In the case of my seven unit and my nine unit, it's not a big deal, but I don't want to keep buying seven unit, 10 unit, 12 unit buildings. That's not our goal because I want to own a lot of properties. If I want to own a lot of properties, I'm going to try to go for economies of scale. Our goal is to get to that hundred plus unit building where you have a full on-site staff that takes care of the gardening, that takes care you of the on-site maintenance, maintenance guy, you have leasing agent, management. Right. Yep. So we can be more efficient the larger the properties. So um, people are scared all the time about owning larger properties. They think that this is an intimidating idea. If I am, you know, looking at it, I'm actually more scared to own a smaller property than I am a bigger property. I'm more nervous about that duplex or triplex or fourplex or five, even a five unit, whatever. I'm more concerned about those properties than I am about owning a 30 unit building or a 50 Ooh. unit building. And let me also jump in on another side note. When you get above 20 units, 20 units and up, it's a completely different caliber of a buyer. Yes. So what you're dealing with is, is when you're 20 units and below and actually more like 10 and below, you're dealing with a lot of mom paws. You're dealing with like people that can buy it. The entry level is way different. So what happens is um, the buyers that are 20 and just when you get 100 unit up, it's a completely different buyer. So it goes 20 to 100, 100 and up. It's just a different buyer. So when you get to 20 and up, the competition and everything else, because a lot of people don't have the couple million dollars plus to put down on the property or like you said, they don't want to go that big. A lot of people are like, it's scary that one property I'm all in. I don't know why they're like that, but you're in a different, you are in a different bucket. You're in a different ball game and it's a different buyer. And if the economy were to shift or change, the people that are 20 to hundred units, most of those people, when the economy changes, they actually thrive through the economy. And a lot of people that bought maybe nine and below um, that might have one building, they actually could struggle in the economy, those are the ones that are going to struggle because if leasing gets what you know, like we, we talked about this, because that type of entry level buyer, those are the ones that get shaken up more. Well, let's say you have a five unit building and you have one vacancy, you have twenty percent vacancy, um, and if you're in a market where rents have maybe gone down a bit and your tenants are all trying to negotiate lower rents, and you've got twenty percent vacancy, the you know it's a little bit harder to cover your operating expense with five units. So if you have thirty units, though. And let's say your rents go down even 10%, you've got, and you've got a little bit more vacancy, you have a lot more units. I mean, I could probably, you know, have two or three vacancies at least and still cover my operating expenses, my mortgage, all of it. So more than that. Yeah. I mean, you can have probably five vacancies or something. I mean, it's not a big deal. But in, in San Diego, historically, even in the Great Recession, our vacancy was not like even 5%. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. you know. So um, that's the other reason why I always say that you should not be scared by the bigger numbers. It, it looks intimidating, but it's this, It's more of the same thing yeah. um, and that I, you're dealing with. It, but you get more um, power in numbers. So And I want to and, and yeah. say this in closing, and you can kind of have a closing remark. 
is so basically how do we get here to this point um it wasn't overnight it started with one property started with one property yeah. guys one property a single family. so so so. Quit trying to worry about a 30 unit when you're getting started and start worrying about just getting started. Like quit trying to be like, I want to be at a thousand units and you and you think about that all day long and you never even get started. So what we did is we just got started. Single family home, units, whatever it is, right? And it feels like it takes forever too in the beginning. Uh, like it feels like because don't get me wrong, I think it's great to have those goals. Um you know, Kenny and I talk about where our goals are and how many units we want to own. And he thinks I'm crazy. And, you know, we weren't – well, I had to get him on my page of, like, what my goals are. But you never let that hold you back. You do need those big goals. But you do have to just get in the game. Stop analyzing and overthinking and doing these things. You've got to, you know, look at the numbers, make sure that they make sense. And then you need to take action. Like if you don't take action, then you're never going to get started. And the scariest thing is that first property. And then once you kind of get that first experience of owning a property, you go through, you know, getting a loan and qualifying and putting the offer in and negotiating terms, you're starting to now get some experience. The more experience you have, the more confidence that you you get. Um, One last thing, because we always talk about this, and of course, um, since we both do financing, is uh, the kind of debt that we're putting on the building. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because we had an option to take a, a lower rate for three years of interest only. And then we had, um, again, we're always doing interest only. My, I'm investing $2 million on this property, so I'm expecting a return on my $2 million investment. I don't need to pay principal down with that. I'm putting 35% down on the property. I, so. I, I just put principal down. That yeah, is principal. That is my principal. So um, I had we had an option to take a lower rate um, with three years IO or to go with a little bit higher rate for five years IO. And I believe it was 4.3 for the lower rate with um, three years of interest only, or it was 4.55. But thank you for the rates coming down because I think right. we're going to get – across the board, yeah, it's yeah, all going to Yeah, exactly. So 4.55 yeah. for five 20 years. 20 basis points lower. Which 25. Which um, – of. 4.55 interest only. So what we did is we looked at the prepayment penalties on both of those because we really wanted that maximum IO period. So we said, well, where, how much would my prepay cost me if I were to take the three-year and then go refi? And then we don't know where rates are going to be. They could be higher. They could be lower. Who knows? Yep. Um, so the prepay, I think, was uh, $70,000. It was a 2% prepay in that third year. Um, and then the savings on the interest was 40000 from 4.3 to 4.55. So we made the decision to say, like, no, I'm, I'm just going to go with the 4.55. It's $40,000 more over the term and cost. But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go with a three-year pay a $70,000 $70, prepay to have that, like, really enticing lower rate. So, again, um, that's kind of the story behind our financing and what kind of debt we're putting on the properties as well. Yeah. And, you know, back to what I was saying is, is this was this, just this particular property, these properties and this, this is, you know, part of the portfolio, but this was done over six years. So, and like Crystal said is so many people are going to sit here and wait for this great deal and wait for this and wait for that. And I get it. I'm not saying just go out and buy any home just to get in the market because that's not what we're saying is there should be strategy behind it. But what we're saying is if you sit here and you wait around for this and to catch the bottom and all this, you're going to be five years out and you're not, and you're not, it's, it's not that simple just to get in the deals we bought. 
were most of them were off market. Actually, I think I think almost all of them were. And the thing is, is you're not going to get off market deals if you just all of a sudden show up and enter the market. Be like, hey, I'm new. Where's all the off market deals? It doesn't work like that. You know, getting in the game is about. Um, Buying a property. It's also about meeting agents. It's also about showing, looking at deals, sizing deals all the time. What's new? It's 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 work too. It's like Crystal says. It's on the weekend driving properties. It's talking to brokers, befriending them. You know, maybe referring them business and getting a relationship with them because that broker, when they had that smoking deal, you want them to go. Shit, I got to call Crystal and Kenny. They did this that. If you're not going to do that and you think they're going to give you deals, they're not. I don't care if you're rich or this or that. They're not going to do. Think about how many other big clients all these brokers exactly. They all have. Everybody has. I, I would say that every broker has at least one client that they would prefer to do business with because that person has the money to close you know that they're going to get the deal done so they have certainty of execution and here you are the new person that might not even have enough money down you're not sure what to do you're questioning everything you don't know what you're doing you're bringing 17 people to a freaking inspection you're doing these kinds of things um so and then you've got the next guy who's like a pro who's seasoned you've got to figure out how to like get a broker to give you a chance because most of the deals today are being traded off market um, that's just, and they want to work with guys. The the they want, it's not, it's not that you can't be firm because Crystal and I, there's certain things where like we negotiate and we push back, but it's intelligently, it's not emotionally, but also too, is you want everybody to think you're cool and nice. And that's what one of the, our mentors said. It's like, when you Don't ask, be any, a pain in the ass, when basically. you ask somebody about the guy that yeah. we respect, it's like, Oh, everybody loves him. And that's why he, they all, oh, we always want to work with him. And then there's people like, Oh my gosh, I have to work with so-and-so. It's not fun. Even if they have a lot of money. It like doesn't some matter. Some of these guys that yeah. are really big apartment owners, they don't. They have a lot of cash and they can definitely close, but brokers know like, oh God, like I, so I'm going to go bring it to my guy who's smaller that could still get the deal done because that guy's just so much easier to work with. Exactly. But so if you're getting started and you're moving up and trying to trade up, the worst thing you can do is be a pain in the ass and be a nuisance in the industry because it's small because people are not going to want to work with you and not going to help you. What you really want is be really cool, befriend everybody. If brokers call you when you just bought the house and they're saying, hey, you want to be nice to them. Don't hang up on them or go, quit calling me, you jerk. Like you don't know if that guy's the next guy to give you an off-market deal. Be nice to everybody. If somebody, if 12 people want to go to lunch, then go to lunch. Maybe you're loyal to somebody, but just keep the channels open. That's how you're going to grow. You're not going to get to the next level by just shutting people off and being an asshole. I'm just telling you, it's not, if you're super, super loaded and you're really well known and they know you're the guy for the deal, it's that, that's like we said, but we're not talking about that guy we're talking about somebody starting out when you start out and you're gonna be a pain in the ass and that's the reputation you get you're gonna be in real big trouble that's i would say the last four deals that we've bought we we bought them because people said oh i know kenny and crystal they're really cool like easy people to work with like we let's get the deal for them the one right now we're in they they apparently had a buyer we're bummed next thing you know i don't know what happened i don't know the story but they got pushed out and kenny and crystal got in and that's in, in this business is a lot of reputation and what people think about you. So the, the tri- last deal that we bought too, like one of the deals that we're selling, there's now, 25 offers. We knew, we, the, we knew the property manager. There were 25 offers, 25 offers out of 25 offers. We got our offer. Yes. Accepted. And there's and bigger guys. Us, and there's guys that, yes. So like I said, is, being and it's cool funny because now I run into other people that go like, oh, I put an offer in on that deal. You're the person who got it. Yep. I'm and, the person and just who got so it, you know, so, the, the deal yeah. we're buying now, there was another, I think there was a couple buyers. There was somebody that came in our office that was behind us that didn't even know we were buying it. And they even said, if I knew it was you, I would have backed off. And you know who I'm talking about. I would have backed off and said, I'll let you have it 
it was their clients because it's a respect thing. But guys. we also too didn't yeah. need it. Like I mean, we have enough of a rapport and in exactly. But it was cool to hear that. Yeah, which is cool. So again, it's like the relationships are so 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 so, so, important. so important, and that can really yeah. scale you quickly. And I will leave with this: get in the game. Getting in the game is not just about buying a property. It's knowing what's going on. It's staying in touch. If you want to meet people, they have these seminars. They have these um, events all the time. You have to pay money. People go, I'm not going to pay $200. Yeah. Why would you, you pay, pay to go to college? Why would you pay $200 to possibly go meet somebody that might bring you an off-market deal that makes you $2 million right. of your and life? Right. And again, I mean, you paid for college. And it, are you using your degree? Exactly. I mean, a lot of these people, you know, have- You'll go spend $200 yeah. and eat dinner in Little Italy or downtown or wherever you are. You know? So I just think- You've got to change your mindset. But to get to where we are now, it's not just about money. It's about a mindset. It's about strategy. It's ups and downs. It's, um, you know, timing and things like that. And, you know, we we have been fortunate and we also have worked very hard and we've been due diligent. And we've also surrounded ourselves by the right people that's helped us get, get to where we are now. Yep. So that's kind of just where we're at. We kind of wanted to let everybody know where we're at with our strategy and like how we're seeing and shifting with the market. So, I mean, basically it's shifting away from the like full on rehab value add type deals to a little bit more cash flow, still with some upside, but more for cash flow. Yeah. And we, um, we're going to do a few more deals like this, hopefully over the next year or two, we got some more capital to apply and we'll talk about that strategy too. And we'll go over those deals as well. So hopefully we can help you guys out. Thanks for uh, hanging and um, hopefully you guys learned something and listening to us blab about trading up apartment deals. Our favorite subject. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.